My name is Marshall, as I just introduced myself a moment ago. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to say welcome to all of you who are in the room with us right now. I want to say welcome to all of you who are joining us online, either now or sometime in the future in the weird world of uh, recorded uh, things. Um, I want to say welcome to Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace Presbyterian Church, our name says a lot. Uh, grace, we believe that the grace of God in Christ changes everything. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a church that we believe you can grow in your faith and your vitality with the Lord Jesus, uh, with our community. Uh, but also, if you are investigating Christianity, if you have questions, we're actually going to take on some very serious questions about Christianity today. We hope this is a church that takes your questions seriously, allows you to try on your faith, or not try it on for that matter, but ask all the questions that you have. All to say, Grace is a church where all people are welcome, regardless of their background, their belief, what they have done, what they have not done. Uh, because fundamentally, we're a church that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He was crucified. He is raised from the dead. And he has revealed himself primarily through his word, the Bible, which we teach through every week. And because we take the Bible seriously, uh, we don't skip hard passages. There's a lot in me that would like to skip Joshua chapter 6. But we're not going to duck we're going to take it head on. So let's pray for us, maybe mainly for me, as we look at this passage. Guys, we come to this iconic and famous passage. We pray that you would meet us. Uh, this is a well-known passage in many ways, maybe not well understood. So Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Oh Lord, for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in January and February, we've been studying the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Jewish scriptures, the Christian Old Testament, uh, Joshua. And we come now to the most famous story in the book of Joshua. Many of you would have known this story, even heard of it, right? Uh, but it's also perhaps the most notorious story in the book of Joshua. Uh, I said this in the video that went out with the email on Friday. I kind of chuckle when I think about the passages and the stories that loom large in the imagination for children's ministry and in the nurseries of children even in homes. I mean, think about stories like Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Jonah in the whale. I mean, these are terrifying stories and we put them on the walls of our nurseries, right? Uh, but perhaps nothing more terrifying than Noah and the ark, right? Two animals go two by two into an ark while the whole world was destroyed. Or this passage... Uh, I learned a song as a child being raised in church about this song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, and a lot of people died. And yet we teach it to our children. What is it about these terrifying stories that loom so large in our imaginations and the imaginations of our children? I mean, first of all, I think these are evocative stories, right? They're action-packed. There's a lot going on here. This is, not, this is not bland. This is, you know, this could make it into a movie very easily, right? But also, I think, though, this story is initially appalling, and we're going to talk about that very directly. A story that's initially appalling, in many ways, reaches and touches the deepest longings of your heart and mine. Longings for justice, for beauty, for goodness, and yes for grace and mercy. And that's what I hope we see today, that this passage is terrifying and awful as it is at first glance, and at long glance for that matter, gets to the heart of who God is and his goodness to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So I want us to see three things this morning. First, that judgment is real and awful. 
Second, that sin is serious, but maybe not the sin you expect. And then third, that salvation is full in Christ. But first, that judgment is real and awful. Now let's situate ourselves just a little bit. If you've been with us, you'll remember some of this. It's after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after leaving Egypt and after 400 plus years of waiting, the people of Israel, they're in the land of promise. They have crossed over the Jordan. We looked at this last week and they are finally in. They're in the promised land after 40 years of wandering, 400 years of waiting. And God has told them, and he says this to him several times, it's in verse 2 here, he says, I have given you the land. But it's not just that he gives them and it's just done with. They actually have to inherit the land. They have to possess the land. They have to conquer the land. And so to do that, the first town they come to is Jericho. Now, Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the world, maybe the oldest. It's 750 feet below sea level. And chapter 6, verse 1 says that Jericho was shut up. We know from chapter 2 that it was a walled city. And as the people of Israel approached, Jericho just shut all the gates. They shut all the windows and they were shut up in their walled city. And God gives them this unique battle plan to conquer the city. He basically says, and I'm summarizing here, he says, put the Ark of the Covenant, which is the special presence of God, put the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of your army and march around the city once a day for six days, but don't do any talking. But as you march, have these seven trumpets played by seven priests who are marching right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Have them be playing as you march. So there's no talking, but there's the sound of trumpets, six days. And then on the seventh day, God commands that they would march around seven times. Then they would blow the trumpets and everyone would shout like crazy. The sound of battle finally coming to the battlefield. Look at the result. Look with me at verse 20. So the people shouted at the end of this command on the seventh day, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And then the verse that haunts and sends a shiver up many a spine. Verse 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Translation, at God's command, they killed everything and everyone. At God's command. Now, if you're a reader of any type of text at all, the Bible for sure, this raises questions. Is this ethnic cleansing? Is this genocide? And then the question behind both of those questions, and that the question that all of us have asked and are asking, is God good? Is God, how can a God who commands this be a good God? I think it's important for us to take seriously the questions and the claims of those who don't believe and are actually against Christianity. So let me quote one of the great and ardent Uh, critics of Christianity, Richard Dawkins. Some of you would know the name Richard Dawkins, one of Christianity's strongest critics. This is what he says about this passage. Richard Dawkins, I quote, The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds. Those are serious words. 
So let's consider what's, we got to get our mind around some things here, okay? So stay with me. This is going to become a little, I'm going to go from preaching to teaching for a little bit here. We're going to Bible study for a little bit here, okay? Let's understand. First, the phrase from verse 21, devoted to destruction, I'm going to use this Hebrew word a couple of times, is haram or karam. Haram, devoted to destruction. It's used several times. And the background for that command of destruction is twofold. First, in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, the first book in the Bible, God is speaking to Abraham, the father of the Israelites, and he says that after 400 years, your people, my people, your descendants, Abraham, they will come back to this land, quote, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What Genesis 15 is teaching is that Abraham is, God's saying to Abraham 400 plus years ago, is the sin of the Canaanites is not yet complete, but one day it will be and the people will come back and they'll deal with it. Implication, the horror of the sin of the Canaanites, the Jerichoites, has been building for 400 plus years and is now full or complete. Second background is the stipulations for haram or holy war or destruction that are laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Where God, first, it's very important, God distinguishes between any general war, which there's a lot more mercy shown, and the particular war that is fought in Canaan for the land of promise. But Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 18 says that I am saying this land, these battles must be unto destruction so that there won't be any Canaanites left to lead you astray in the abominations that they engage in with their gods. Okay, so summary, God commands destruction, he commands haram for two reasons. Because the sin of the Canaanites has become full over 400 years and secondly he wants to protect his people from temptation. Okay, stay with me. Now, were the Jerichoites, the Canaanites, were they really that bad? Let's look at the biblical record and the archaeological record. First, the biblical record. Leviticus uh, 18 and 19, uh, which would have been written just a few years before this, is the holiness code for Israel. And as Moses lays out the holiness code for the people of Israel, he also names the sins of the Canaanites. Here are some of the sins of the Canaanites, the Jerichoites. Incest. Adultery, child sacrifice, necromancy, sexual immorality, bestiality, consulting mediums, selling daughters into prostitution. And then Leviticus 18 verse 28 says that the land, it says the land is going to vomit out the Canaanites, the Jerichoites, because of the heinousness of their sin. So that's the biblical record of their sin. Uh, the archaeological record actually backs this up. There are archaeological artifacts that commemorate and show that there was child sacrifice and ritual prostitution. I think Eugene Peterson helps us here. Let me quote him. Eugene Peterson says, We see this holy war or this holy cause, and we think, how terrible. But if we were to put ourselves back in 13th century B.C., we might see it differently. Canaanite culture was a snake pit of child sacrifice and sacred prostitution, practices ruthlessly devoted to using the most innocent and vulnerable members of the community, babies and virgins, to manipulate the gods for gain. End quote. A couple other things to note. Some of this is from a man named Michael Riddlenick about this haram, this command for destruction. This is not a general principle. I already said this once, I'm going to say it again. This is not a general principle. The rule for, law, uh, for warfare in other contexts for the Israelites was different. But when it came to this isolated circumstance, 
the conquest of the land. This was the law, devotion to destruction. Second, this is not ethnic cleansing, but extreme wickedness. This is not intemperate or impatient, but long-suffering patience. This is not divine vindictiveness, but divine protection. And finally, this is not ethnic genocide, but a divine judgment. Now, if you're like me, that's okay, but that's still not really satisfying. This is still awful. And I'm not saying that anything that I've even said makes this more palatable for us as 21st century readers. This stuff is stiff. This is messy, and it makes us uncomfortable. This is what the Bible says, though. But here's what's true. God's ways are not our ways. And his ways are past our finding out because what is 100% clear from this passage is that God judges sin. And the wages of sin is death. Judgment is real. And it is awful. And if you know me at all, you know that I want to duck this. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about grace, love, and acceptance. I want to duck this, but there's two reasons, at least, that I don't duck this passage and I don't duck this teaching. The first is it's in the Bible. And if I'm going to take the Bible seriously, I have to take this passage seriously. I have to take haram seriously. But there's also this, people I love and the person that I love most, <laughs> this woman, my wife, she came to faith. Through teaching like this. Like I, I share the gospel through grace. And, but Allison came to faith through starting to understand God's judgment. And one of my other best friends, a friend of mine who now lives in New York City, he came to faith the same way. We oftentimes think that it's the love and, and it is. But also God's judgment does lead people to repentance. It led the person I love most to repentance. So thank God. Thank God for the clarity of scriptures. But since judgment is real, point one... <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> uh, point two, judgment is real, point one. Point two, sin is serious, but not the sin you're thinking about. You know, sin is a word that we use here. We have a confession of sin every week. It's not a real popular word in 2022. I mean, you're maybe like, I don't like that word, Marshall. I knew I shouldn't have come to church today. I want to feel better about myself. I want my self-esteem. And by the way, Marshall, I'm not like those derelicts you're describing in Jericho. Well, maybe you're not like the derelicts in Joshua 6. But what I want you to understand is that their main sin was not sexual immorality. It was not infanticide. It was not child sacrifice or some kind of voodoo witchcraft. Think about Rahab, who we learned about in Joshua 2. The prostitute, who it keeps calling her the prostitute, uh, who took in the Israelite spies. Verses 22 to 25 point out that she was saved, she was spared judgment, she was not judged. But we certainly know that she was sexually immoral, she was a prostitute. Based on her profession, she had probably killed a few babies in her day. That's what you would have to do if you were a prostitute, there was no birth control. And based on her address in Jericho, she was probably guilty of most of the sins in Leviticus 18 and 19 that I read just a moment ago. And yet she was saved. She was spared. Those sins did not condemn her. The sin that brought judgment on Jericho was not ultimately any of those heinous sins. The sin that condemned the people of Jericho was a failure to acknowledge the true and living God. Who they had heard about. They had heard about this God. But they had failed to put their trust in him. You see the sin beneath the sin beneath the sin. This is what the first commandment is about. The sin beneath the sin is failure to trust 
God because the men and women of Jericho, they'd heard. They'd heard about this God. Maybe they'd heard about God from their grandparents who had talked about this man 400 years ago named Abraham who only worshipped one God. Maybe they'd heard from them. For certain, they had heard about the crossing of the Red Sea and the other victories. We know this because in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab says this. One of their contemporaries says, We, i.e. all of Jericho, have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea and defeated the kings of the Amorites. That's east of the Jordan. They would have heard or at least known about the crossing of the, Red, of the Jordan River just a few days before because now these people are around their city. They would have heard about that. And after hearing all that, Think about this eerie moment. They would have watched and listened for six days as the whole army of Israel with the ark of the presence of God at the very center, with no one speaking but these trumpets blowing as they circled the city for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. These Jerichoites, they had heard about God. Those six days... That's like a street preacher calling the men and women, boys in Jericho of Jericho to faith in God. It's like they're holding up a sign that says, repent, the end is near. Sometimes I wonder if we ought to preach more like that. Just go to the street corners, repent, the end is near. Because like Rahab or like Nineveh in Jonah's time, they could have repented. They could have repented those six days, the 40, days, the 40 years before. You see, their sin was not disobedience. Their sin was not ultimately immorality. Those were consequences. Their sin was not trusting and looking, acknowledging God. Now, as I say these words, I have two types of people in mind. Irreligious people and religious people. First, irreligious people. People who, maybe in an echoist way, you're kind of like a Jerichoite. You know that the Jerichoites were a nasty bunch. The New Testament equivalent of the Jerichoites was the Corinthians. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and tell me if this sounds like Jericho, okay? I, mean, I need to preach Corinthians someday. That'll be fun. This is what Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds like Joshua 6. Sounds like Jericho. But then in one of the great lines of all of Scripture, the Apostle Paul writing says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, if you have a past, if you have a present, if you feel like a Corinthian or a Jerichoite, there is hope. You were All those things. Rahab was saved. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you are doing. What matters, do you look to God? Do you trust Him? That is the only sin at the end of the day that matters. Do you look to God? You shall have no other gods before me. Do um, God loves to forgive. He forgave Rahab, he forgave the Corinthians, and he can forgive you and me. Second group of people, religious people, good people, people like, well, people like me, uh, and you. You're good. You're good. I'm good. Not sexually immoral, at least not with a live person. But don't be fooled. Your goodness, my goodness, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. The wages of sin is death. And the sin beneath the sin is not the things that we do. It is what our heart attitude towards God. 
Have we trusted and acknowledged God? Friends, you are more wicked. I am more wicked than I ever dared to imagine. I'm more like a Jerichoite, a Canaanite, a Corinthian than I ever dared to imagine. But in turning to God like Rahab and in Christ, we can be loved and accepted more than we ever dared hope. And I think the reason this story is beloved is actually with a little work, mental work and biblical reasoning, we can see from the depths of darkness and sin. Is there a darker passage in scripture than Joshua, Joshua 6? We can see from the depths of darkness to the heights of the light and the grace of God. So friends, turn with me to the grace of God because I have really good news. Really good news. And we see it primarily in two people in this passage. The first is Rahab. I've already referred to her. Verse 17, Joshua instructs her to be protected. Verse 22 and following, we show how she is saved from the city. And then verse 25, and I love how they call her again the prostitute. Let me read, look with me, verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute, like, they won't give this girl a break. Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has, I love this, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent the spy to spy out Jericho. Rahab repented and re responded in repentance. She trusted not in the walls of Jericho, not in her own goodness. She knew that there was nothing in this world that could stand up to God. She cast her lot with the God of Israel, and she was spared judgment. That's the first person this passage makes me think of. The second is her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus. Jesus. Well, what does Jesus have to do with Jericho? One of my favorite theologians is a man named Christopher Wright. He's a British theologian. And he has this great line. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you have a Bible with you, turn to the Old Testament and write this over the top of your Old Testament uh, table of contents. I'll say it twice, two different ways. Christopher Wright says this. When Jesus read the Old Testament, which by the way he did, when Jesus read the Old Testament, he understood the shape of his own identity. When Jesus read the Old Testament, he, should, he understood the shape of his own identity. When Je Let me put a more pointed on that. When Jesus read Joshua, even Joshua 6, he understood the shape of his own identity. A large part of how Jesus came to understand himself as he grew up was reading God's word. It was formed by reading the Jewish scriptures. And when he read this story, he understood himself and God's calling on his life even more. One more fun game to see if you've been paying attention, okay? Call this out, please. It's verbal. I'm, I know we're Presbyterian, but you can talk. What is the one number, what is the one number that you associate with this story that I've been telling you from Jericho? What's the one number? Seven, thank you. Seven priests bearing seven trumpets circling the city seven days, seven times, and on the seventh day crying out seven times. Seven. Seven, seven, seven. Seven is the number that is associated with fullness and completeness. Another question, see if somebody can call out. If you were a reporter, imagine you're a reporter for the New York Times and you're watching what's happening from the sidelines. What is the one thing that you would report on after seven days? What's the first thing you would report on? Nobody's going to say, this is a little riskier. The trumpets. The trumpets would have been the thing that you heard every day and then all day on the seventh day. The trumpets were the only noise for six days. And part of the uproar on the seventh day were the trumpets. The trumpets, what are the trumpets about? Well, the trumpets herald the coming of a new world order. The trumpets herald the coming where sin is defeated. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 in the New Testament, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the sound of a trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
You see, friends, Jesus came to conquer sin and death, to fight the demonic forces, to banish all that is ugly and harmful. He came to bring about a peaceable kingdom. And the story of Jericho with all of its sevens and its trumpets is a foretaste. It's pointing forward to the completion, the last day. It's pointing forward to when heaven comes to earth, when God will put the world to rights and sin will be no more. There will be no more sexual immorality and all the pain that it belongs will be wiped from our hearts. There will be no more pornography and the degrading, destroying of the dignity of vulnerable people. There will be no more abuse, physical or otherwise, that so ransacks our culture. And you friends, when Jesus read Joshua 6, he would have thought of that great and final day when sin would be no more of completion, when the trumpet sounds. That's what Jesus would have thought of when he read this passage. But that's not all he would have thought about. And I think he would have thought more about this. He also would have thought about haram. Devoted to destruction. And when he thought about Haram, he would have thought about himself. He would have thought about himself because he knew the day was coming when he was the lamb who would be slaughtered. He knew the day was coming when he would be consumed as a sacrifice, totally burnt. He knew that the walls of judgment one day were coming down on him. The most powerful evocation of this in the New Testament is our assurance of pardon this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, remember that phrase, we're coming back to it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him to be sin, to be haram, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Christ takes on himself the sin of the world. He became the victim of the holy war that God wages against sin. And why? For our sake. I really believe that the reason stories like this loom so large in our imagination in ways that we can't fully connect, the synapses don't always connect until we think hard about it. But there's so much here. The sin the judgment, but that ultimately all of that points forward to and finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sakes became haram, so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's so much good in the midst of the appalling terror, which I don't fully understand. There's so much goodness here. There's so much goodness. Jesus did this for you. He hung himself on a cross Dying for the sins of the world. Devoted to destruction for you and for me. So what do we do with this story? I like to have tangible applications in my conclusion. These are not terribly tangible. uh, But I hope they help you. They help me. First is this. Take comfort. Take courage. One day heaven is coming to earth. And all sin, evil, and wickedness will be no more. All the hurt and pain you feel, all the hurt and pain you have inflicted will be no more. God will put the world to rights. There will be no more injustice. There will only be goodness, beauty, and truth. Take comfort. That day is coming. The sevens and the trumpets. But also this. Let this story warm your heart. The story of Jesus. Your sin is serious and deserves judgment. The wages of sin is death. But take heart. For our sake, Jesus was devoted to destruction that you and I might become the righteousness 
of God. Friends, this is, this is just a beautiful story. It is tough sledding, yes, but it is a beautiful story of God's love for us, his care for us. He became what he was not, and he became sin for our sake so that we might become the righteousness of God. I can tell you no better news than that. God loves you. He loves you that much. <laughs> Let me pray. God, thank you. You take us so seriously that you will not allow our sins to just be wiped away with an eraser. They had to be consumed. They had to be destroyed. And you have done that in the precious blood and the life of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.